this time, let me invite any little ones in our midst who want to head on down to the kids' area for your time of teaching and, and fellowship together. Uh, and then as that's happening, let me invite the rest of you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 13. Uh, it is a, 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 it's great to be back with you all. Um, I really, I've really missed you guys over the past couple of weeks. I've missed gathering with you. I will say that my family and I had a great time a couple, for a couple of weeks just visiting family in another part of the country and and then we had the opportunity to, to vacate to Disney World, and so that was a lot of fun. Uh, they say you can't leave Disney World without getting sick, and that has proven true for my family. So my wife and all our kids, they're, they're down for the count at the house right now, and, and we'll see what happens to me. But um, thank you for your prayers and for encouraging our trip. We certainly um, missed you. Now, a little over a week and a half ago, I was riding down Splash Mountain with my six-year-old, uh, it was a blast. That was her favorite ride. And now uh, I'm standing before you with Mark 13 in front of me, a, a passage that's dealing with what verse 14 describes as the uh, abomination of desolation. Uh, so it's quite a contrast. It's the type of juxtaposition that has given me whiplash over this week as, we've, as, we've been, as I've been looking at this passage. And I will say that we've got some work to do today. We have a long text uh, we're covering the whole chapter, and we have less time than we normally have to deal with these types of things, and, and that is for good reason. Our gathering tonight is abbreviated so that we can move downstairs and have our dinner party that we do uh, once a quarter, and so just kind of keep that in mind as we're moving through this passage. And then we're also dealing with one of the more difficult passages in all of the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the hardest texts in this Gospel. There's one scholar who commented on this chapter saying, in all of Mark, there is no passage more problematic than this one. That's never encouraging to read on Monday, looking forward to Sunday. You read that and you're like, well, that's awesome. That's, that's more hours. Yes. All right. We'll see if we can do this. But, um, but here we are. And as, as complex as this chapter can be, as difficult and challenging as it might be, it's got some good stuff for us. And what you're going to see as we look at the chapters, Jesus does essentially two things. On one hand, Jesus predicts the imminent and catastrophic destruction of the Jewish temple in the city of Jerusalem. He predicts, he prophesies an event that would take place about 37 years after Jesus has this private conversation with his disciples about this matter. But then the second thing he does is he promises to return. He promises to come again. And, and so that makes this passage a fitting passage for the Advent season. Because this season is all about the comings of Christ. It's the time where we reflect upon first Jesus's arrival as the suffering servant born of a virgin in an obscure place called Bethlehem. And this Jesus would then live a life that you and I could not live. And he would die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, only to then rise again to assure you and me that one day we would rise from our own graves. We, we consider that coming during the Advent season, but we also hinge towards the future. And we use this season to reflect upon the next time Christ comes, the next time he appears in this world, only he's not coming in that moment as a suffering servant. He is coming as the victorious king. And when he does, according to verse 26 in this chapter, he will show up with great power and great glory to condemn evil, to end suffering, and to gather all of his people from the far corners of the earth. It's a 
beautiful thing to think about these realities tonight. Now, what makes this passage difficult is deciphering what asks what portions of the passage pertain to the destruction of the temple in the first century world and what portions refer to the second advent or the second coming of Christ. And then once you kind of carve that up, you have to decide why would Jesus put these two things together? Why would he deal with both of these matters in response to a question that the disciples ask him about a sign and those types of things? Now, there are, many, there are a few scholars that disagree with that take. There, there are some who say that everything in chapter 13 relates to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., This is the view taken by a very popular scholar, a guy by the name of N.T. Wright holds that view. But then uh, he holds that and a couple of others hold that view because verse 30 would tell us, truly I say to you, this generation, referring to those those disciples, will not pass away until all these things take place. And so they conclude, well, that means everything should have already happened, that therefore everything in this chapter points to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., but then there are some on the opposite end of the spectrum, and this is where things get a little, little complicated. On the, far, on the opposite of that, there are some who say, no, Mark 13, everything in it deals with the second coming of Christ. They, they, they say that Jesus basically ignores the question that was asked of him, and, and he describes entirely an end-time scenario. And so they look at the scope of the destruction that Jesus anticipates and the references to the second coming that seem to show up in verses 24 through 27 and are definitely apparent in verses 32 through 37. They say that and say, okay, everything refers to the second coming. And so you have those two extremes. But then in between those two views, most scholars, and this is where I would fall and in my scholarship and study of the scriptures, most people see Jesus dealing with both events in this chapter. He's talking about, yes, a first century calamity, a first century judgment that befell Jerusalem. But he's also talking about his second coming. He's anticipating that event. And the reason why I think that is true, not only from the evidence that is found in Mark chapter 13, but if you just kind of hold that spot and you look over at Matthew chapter 24, you don't have to turn there, it'll pop up on the screen. Matthew's account of this conversation, he puts this concern in the, he shows how the disciples carry this concern into the conversation. Matthew chapter 24, verse three, listen to the dual emphasis found there. It says, The disciples say to Jesus, tell us when will these things be, referring to the destruction of the temple that Jesus has said is going to happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? When will all things be made due? When will this world end? When is that going to go down? When is Christ going to return? And and so they, they bring both of those themes together, and I think Jesus has those themes woven together in Mark chapter 13. Um... Now, with that in mind, let me just say this. When it comes to a complex text such as this one, where there are some varying degrees of different, ty- different ways to interpret it and to account for what's in this chapter, I want you to understand when it comes to a complex or a difficult passage like this, it is possible for two people who love Jesus, who believe the gospel, who love the church, who trust the Bible as God's word written, it is possible for those two people to have different takes on this particular text. And so my take on Mark 13 may be different from previous takes you've heard if you've ever heard this chapter taught. 
And I don't want you to be alarmed by that. I think that's okay as long as you and I are in agreement on one big reality. And that one big reality is that one day Jesus will return. There's no negotiating that dynamic. That is clear in the scriptures, and that is clear all throughout church history. Believers believe that one day Jesus will return to this world, and he's going to usher in a new heavens and a new earth. So regardless of how we put together the details and the specifics of this chapter, we're holding on to that truth and that reality together. That is what we will be in agreement on. So just keep that in mind. And as we study the Bible, a couple other thoughts you want to kind of hold in your mind as we look into this chapter is that on one hand, um, what you got to understand, anytime you open the Bible and you read a passage of Scripture and you begin to study it, you need to understand that every passage, if you're going to draw a responsible and a faithful interpretation of that passage, you have to study that passage in light of its immediate historical context. You have to consider where that passage falls in the book in which it is written, and you have to consider where that passage falls in light of the whole Bible. This passage is no different. And when you do that, you're going to see that Mark chapter 13 represents the culmination of Jesus' teaching about the temple. This is what we've heard over the past several weeks. Jesus is in the temple and he's talking about, he's leveraging his authority. He's already predicted that one day the temple will be judged, that he's come to replace the temple and it will be destroyed. And you see this emphasis in the first four verses of chapter 13, when Jesus tells his disciples, there will not be one day left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And in return, the disciples then ask, well, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So it's clear that the destruction of the temple is, in the, is the foremost concern of this chapter. And it is because of that, I would say to you that I believe most, almost everything you see in chapter 13, from verse 5 all the way down to the end of the chapter, deals with the destruction of the temple and historical events that have already happened in Jerusalem, uh, climaxing in 70 AD. And as I say that, I know that might disappoint some of you. It might burst some bubbles and it might pop some balloons because I know there are some of us, perhaps, who are very excited about talking about the end times. Uh, We get really excited when it comes to end time prophecy and predicting the end of all things and reading our newspapers and trying to figure out, well, what, what does Russia's move here mean for that passage in the Bible? Or what does President Trump's election mean for the ushering in of the end times or whatever the case may be? I know that we have a tendency to become infatuated with end time prophecies, end time predictions. And so if I say, say, which I'm going to tell you tonight, that Mark 13 deals mainly with events that have already happened, that might, dis- that might disappoint you. But hopefully you'll hang in there and you'll still see some beauty in this passage. You see, essentially, when it comes to how you and I study the Bible, we must, not, we must resist the temptation to read our newspapers back into the Bibles. Current events are not starting blocks for the study of the Scriptures. We study the scriptures from the starting point of their immediate historical context. Every passage, this one is no exception. So I want to keep that in mind. And then the second thing you want to keep in mind is that every passage has an edifying purpose. Every passage has a faith-building concern. This chapter has been given to us to build our faith in a particular kind of way right now. This passage is not a horoscope. 
It was not given so you and I could predict the exact details of the end times in the future. Instead, the goal of this passage is to inspire present faithfulness in the face of future hardships. Present faithfulness in the face of future hardships. That's the concern and the edifying purpose of this passage. You see, one of the challenging features of it, again, is the fact that Jesus and what he's teaching and what he's laying out here, he does seem to suggest that life in this world is not going to improve before Christ returns. He suggests that, if anything, Jesus states that life is going to get harder, particularly for those of us who identify with Jesus as his followers. And that shouldn't surprise us because we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. We live in a world where sin, Satan, and death are present and plaguing all things. And, and what you and I have to hold on to, kind of our worldview, is that as long as sin, Satan, and death are present in the world, then utopian ideals are naive. We don't want it to subscribe to utopian ideals in our outlook on the world. But while I say that, don't let that drive you to despair. Don't let that drive you to disengage from, from trying to better the world that you live in and trying to honor Jesus and help others as long as you are here for as much time as you give. Uh, don't let it drive you to despair because there's another truth that we gotta kind of bring into that. And that is the truth from this passage that as long as Jesus is risen, as long as Jesus is reigning, and as long as Jesus is returning, then our dystopian fears are unnecessary. We don't have to be afraid or despair or uh, be paralyzed by pessimism in light of what this chapter is teaching. And for the reason, that, the reason why I think that is, is because when you read this chapter from start to finish, you're going to find 17 times 17 times in this chapter, Jesus commands his disciples in one phrase or another to be on guard or to stay awake. In other words, he's saying, don't subscribe to a naive optimism or to a poisonous pessimism about life in the world that is. Instead, let the risen and returning Christ infuse within you a hopeful realism a hopeful realism. Let it be infused into your faith and that will enable you to endure to the end. You see, although the disciples have asked for a sign in this passage, that's, where the, that's how the conversation begins. They ask for a sign about when the destruction of the temple is gonna happen. And Jesus begins in verse five on down to verse eight by identifying what he says are non-signs, just warning them about some hardships that are gonna come. And you could put these hardships in three categories. He says, one, in verse five or six, he says, you need to beware of what might be called as counterfeit Christ or false teachers or false teaching. He's saying that stuff is gonna be present in the world. And then he goes on to identify wars, saying that nation's gonna rise against nation. There's gonna be conflict. Wars are gonna happen. Then he talks about earthquakes arising, natural disasters. But notice what he says in verse seven. In the face of that, he tells his disciples, do not be alarmed by those things. They do not signify the end. Now, I don't know how that lands on you. If you've been journeying with Jesus and studying the Bible for any amount of time, perhaps you have been conditioned to think, well, anytime war breaks out in the world or an earthquake erupts, then you run to the Bible trying to figure out what, mean, what does that mean for the return of Christ in the end times. And Jesus is saying, look, those things are not signs. They're not signs. Don't be alarmed by them. Those are regular occurrences in this world. 
Don't be surprised by those types of hardships and those types of difficulties. In other words, you should not be a chicken little Christian. Don't be a chicken little Christian who screams that the sky is falling every time war breaks out or every time an earthquake erupts or false teachers or false teachings begin to gain influence. Jesus is saying every generation will endure those types of hardships. They are normal realities of life in a fallen world and they affect Christians and non-Christians alike. In fact, one historian, just kind of looking over human history, he would make this statement about just the normality of war. He said that war is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. So that means that we should not lose heart when those things occur. We don't get knocked off by them. We don't become chicken little Christians in the face of them. Instead, yes, we do let them heighten our awareness. We do long for, the, for Christ's coming and for his kingdom to be consummated. But notice what Jesus says in verse 8. After laying out those categories in verse 8, he says, these are but the beginning of what? The beginning of the birth pains. He uses this metaphor of birth pains. Now, from what I've seen and from what I've heard, birth pains hurt. Birth pains are terrible. Birth pains are not enjoyable. My wife's given birth to three kids, and I've seen this on three different occasions. Birth pains, from my observation, are not very pleasant. She says they're terrible. But one of the things about birth pains is that birth pains are temporary. And one of the things about birth pains is though they are terrible, they are temporary. And one day or in one moment, they're going to give birth to life. Things are going to change for the better. When those birth pains subside, life will come. The Apostle Paul would use that same metaphor in Romans chapter 8 when he's talking about the birth pains of this world and the struggles and the calamities of life in a fallen world. He would say this in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, I believe. He says, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. He's saying when hardships arise, don't be deceived into thinking that God has lost control of the world. He's saying not only is God still in control, God is sovereignly steering all of our difficulties towards our ultimate deliverance. He's saying every temporary pain will serve our eternal pleasure. That's what birth pains mean. Temporary pain serving eternal pleasure. God's sovereign grace will transform all of our groaning into glory. He's going to transform the groaning of this world into glory. And that is something we look forward to. But at the same time, it's something we hold on to when we step into verses 9 through 13. And we look at that other category that Jesus introduces. And that is the, the category of persecution that corresponds with our calling to proclaim the gospel. And he goes on in verses 9 through 13 to describe these types of, of persecutions and various forms and various styles. And what's interesting about this passage, as Jesus is saying this to his disciples, understand that these words that he's communicating would soon become very relevant for them. Because if you hold those words and you read through the book of Acts, you're going to see every one of these things going down. 
If you read through the history of the first generation of Christ followers, the start of the church in the book of Acts, every one of these things happened to them. Those disciples are brought before councils. Those disciples are beaten in synagogues. Those disciples stand before governors and kings. Those disciples preach the gospel to all the nations or to the non-Jewish world. All of that would happen before the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. And it's in those moments when all that is going down, Jesus encourages them that the Holy Spirit will give them words to speak. And you see the the disciples who later become the apostles preaching sermons spontaneously, extemporaneously in the face of hardship, proclaiming the gospel faithfully in those moments. And then Jesus would go on to describe some pretty hard stuff in verse 12 where he says even families are gonna divide and the disciples are gonna be hated because of their association with him. But then notice what he says and here's where we get into some of the key of verse 13. He says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, a saving faith is an enduring faith. Saving faith is an enduring faith every time. And you may hear that and you may think, well, man, life is gonna get really hard for the disciples and life could get hard for some of us as we journey through the world that is. But let me, let me assure you and let me encourage you to keep in mind that everything that Jesus says is gonna go down in the lives of his disciples. He himself endured first. Because if you take that passage and you see what's outlined there and you read to the end of the gospel of Mark, you will see every single one of those things happening to Jesus. You will see Jesus being betrayed by one of his best friends, a guy who was like family to him, who he had hung out with every day for three years. He is betrayed by someone close to him. You're gonna see Jesus being delivered over to rulers. You're gonna see Jesus being brought before a governor. You're gonna see Jesus being slandered by a false testimony, savagely mocked, beaten and killed. You're gonna see Jesus crucified, but at the same time, you're gonna see Jesus rise from the grave. And as you and I endure any hardships that come our way as a result of our following of Jesus, we cling to the promise that one day you and I will too. You see in this moment, and we've seen this time and time again in Mark's gospel, that the fate of the disciples is the fate of Jesus, or the fate of Jesus is the fate of the disciples, that his death is their death, his resurrection is their resurrection. We might say it is our death and our resurrection as well. So even then, you see this idea of of inspiring faith in the face of future hardships. That's the, that's the edifying point of those first several verses. But then you look at verse 14 and you turn a corner and you see some complexity being introduced there. Now, we didn't read this portion earlier uh, for, because it's such a big text, but let's read it now just to get it out there. Verse 14, Jesus would then say, but when you see the abomination of desolation, there's that powerful phrase, standing where it ought not to be, parenthesis, let the reader understand, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not return back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those days who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. 
And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there is the Christ, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And so he outlines uh, an, an unflattering picture about some of the things that are gonna happen. And this is where a lot of the complexity, again, begins to show up in this passage. Scholars differ amongst themselves as to whether this portion of the scripture applies to the temple or whether this portion of scripture applies to the end of all things. Now, I believe it primarily applies to the events, to events that have already happened. But at the same time, I think this passage gives a prophetic nod to an end time scenario and to some end time events. And the reason why I think that is how I understand prophetic or prediction passages in the Bible. One of the distinct features of biblical prophecy or prediction passages such as this one is that they always encompass far more than what initially happens. Let me give you an example. You take an Old Testament prophet like the prophet Isaiah and you read his book closely, you'll see that Isaiah spoke of a coming king who would liberate Israel from Babylonian captivity and return them to the promised land. You read those prophecies and those predictions and history would tell you that the, that person was the Persian king Cyrus, that he was the one who did those things, that God used him to destroy the Babylonians. And afterwards, he then told the people of Israel to go home. And so Isaiah's predictions, his prophecies included Cyrus, but his predictions and prophecies far surpassed Cyrus because in those same passages, you see a nod towards a more ultimate fulfillment. You see a greater compass as they spoke of a greater king who would come and bring ultimate deliverance for all of God's people everywhere. Or to put it in a phrase that you can chew on later, biblical prophecy is being fulfilled until it is filled full. There are multiple fulfillments of the things that are predicted in the scriptures. You get hints of things to come along the way in response to the things that God says are going to go down. Biblical prophecy is being fulfilled until it is filled full, finds its ultimate consummation. Therefore, they tend to have multiple fulfillings until reaching ultimate fulfillment. And so when Jesus warns his disciples in this passage that war is coming, that's basically what he's describing here. War is coming. And we know that in 66 AD, a man named Titus, who would later succeed his father and become the Roman emperor, attacked Jerusalem, resulting in the destruction of the temple. War broke out and it would last four years. And in 70 AD, the temple would be burned to the ground. And those days were harsh. They were intense. They were some of the roughest descriptions of war and the calamities of war that you will ever read. There was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus wrote a book called The War of the Jews and he describes some of the things that went down. And it's not fun reading. It'll turn your stomach. He estimates that during that time, about 1.1 million Jews died. A lot of them died as a result of, star of starvation. He said during this period is that people were fleeing to the mountains. There was this... People got so hungry that women began to kill and eat their kids. Children began to kill and eat their parents. And he describes this in this writing, descriptions that help us make sense of Jesus' use of what I think is prophetic hyperbole in verse 819, talking about how intense everything was and the uniqueness of that situation. So I think what's being described are events that were tied to that, but 
But then you have to come back to verse 14 because that's really the hard part where you try to figure out what specifically is this abomination of desolation? What is that in reference to? And I'll be honest with you, I don't really know. And not many, not scholars don't know. They have some guesses, but all they are are guesses. It's hard for us, but according to Mark, he puts that parenthesis, let the reader understand, seems to suggest that the first readers of Mark's gospel would have understood what that was in reference to. Now we know that the phrase abomination of desolation comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 11, verse 31. You read this passage where it says, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. That was written by the prophet Daniel several hundred years before this moment. And something like what Daniel describes happened before Jesus even uttered these words. It happened, it seems, in 168 BC when a guy by the name of Antioch Epiphanes came in and he desecrated the temple. Desecrated the temple by erecting an altar in the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig on top of it. Very few things would be more offensive to the Jewish people than that. And then he made the practice of Judaism a capital offense in that moment. So there was a type of abomination of desolation that already occurred. And when Jesus grabs that language here, he's saying a similar thing is going to happen before the temple is destroyed, before the temple is judged. Now, again, we don't know exactly what that is in reference to. Some would say, well, it's the actual burning of the temple when Titus's soldiers set fire to things and, and just fire just leveled everything. But then there are others who say during that time, and this is where I kind of lean, there was a group of zealots, some Jewish nationalists who didn't care so much about Judaism and, and fidelity to the commandments of God. And so during the war, they actually went into the Holy of Holies and they desecrated it by making a mockery of the sacrificial system that occurred there. They mocked everything thinking, well, war has broken out. We've been offering these sacrifices. God isn't honoring his word. So they begin to mock and murder in that area. They even appointed one of themselves as the great high priest. And they began to make fun of everything that Israel practiced up to that point. All that happening up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, whatever that is in reference to, Whatever that is in reference to, the big idea of this passage is that many Christians survived these events because they trusted Jesus' word when they saw that sign. They trusted Jesus' word and they fled the city. And if you want to talk about application, what does this mean for you? This is what it means for you. Their example should remind us that Jesus' word can be trusted that's where Jesus puts the emphasis in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He tells them these things. He gives them a heads up. When they begin to see this sign, whatever that abomination of desolation was, they fled, they got out, and many of them were spared. So this means that as followers of Jesus, what we do is we fill our faith up with the word of Christ, and in so doing, that will enable us to overcome our fear of future hardships. You have to fill your faith with the word of Christ as you move into the future, knowing that hardships will likely meet you there. You see, the Christian faith is a lot like a hot air balloon. If you're familiar with how a hot air balloon works, it basically exists in three parts. You have a basket, a burner, and a balloon. And the way they work, I'm told that you light the burner, 
And that burner heats up air and blows hot air into the balloon that then fills up and then lifts the basket off the ground. And as one uh, overly poetic passenger said, in that moment, you experience the serene sense of a natural flight. When our faith, when our faith is filled up with the heat of the word of Christ, It is possible for you and I to find a peace that transcends all understanding, that lifts us up in the midst of hardships, able to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, despite whatever difficulties we might face. I think this is where we go with this passage. We trust the word of Christ. Now, with that said, I do believe that forms and aspects of this abomination of desolation has already been initially fulfilled. That, that doesn't mean that there may not be an ultimate fulfillment sometime in the future. Perhaps Jesus' word in that regard has yet to be fulfilled. There are many scholars who point to this man of lawlessness that's described in 2 Thessalonians and this antichrist. Perhaps you've heard that reference, this world-domineering figure who will rise to power before Jesus returns. There may be some credence to those views, but I just don't think that's the concern of Mark 13. Mark 13 is concerned with the present condition of our faith in the face of hardships. Mark 13 is not concerned with you and I obsessively becoming obsessively infatuated with end-time predictions. We should walk away from this passage having our faith filled with the word of Christ that is trusting, that we, that is knowing we can trust his word and as his word comes to us. Jesus makes this very explicit when he talks about how his words will never pass away. But then you look at verse 24 and he moves into, this is where I think the passage shifts to focusing on the second coming of Christ. He says, but in those days, referring to another day in the future, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great glory, great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. He describes his second coming. And then in verse 28, again, this is how I'm piecing it together. Verse 28, he then turns back to focusing on the temple. He pulls out the image of a fig tree and he says, learn its lesson. You know that earlier in chapter 12, Jesus used a fig tree to illustrate the temple. It's already associated with that. So I think he comes back to focusing on the temple in verses 28 through 31. But then you get to verse You get to verse 32, and I think he oscillates back. He comes back. You see a weaving effect, an antiphony effect in this passage. Verse 32, he steps back up, and he starts talking about his coming. And this is where the chapter ends. It ends with the assurance that one day Christ will return. Now, you read that passage, verses 32 through 36, and a lot could be said about that. But if anything, this passage should caution you and I against casting end time predictions. Jesus is clear that no one knows the hour for when he will return. He even says he doesn't even know. So you want some more application from this passage? Don't waste your money buying a book whose title promises to crack any eschatological code. Keep your money. Don't waste it. That's the application. That's the takeaway for tonight. I'm not buying a book that's trying to tell me when Jesus is coming back. Don't do that. It's a waste of money. There was a book written in 1988 that said, it was titled literally 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And it actually 
was bought. It, it climbed the charts of the bestseller list. But then when 1989 rolled around, sales plummeted, right? <laughs> A lot of people wasted their money. Don't waste yours. That's the takeaway from this text. You see, ultimately, our concern, as you read this passage and as you study the Gospels, our concern should not be with signs. Our concerns should be with service. When you read verses 32 all the way down to 37, this is the image he pulls out. He says in verse 34, it is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge and they have work to do. They have a mission to fulfill and they are to be faithful to that calling until the moment when Christ returns. So you're not looking up into the sky. You are engaging the world in which you live, loving and serving and blessing the world in which you live. We are concerned with service, not signs. We're not concerned with future predictions, but with present obedience. So we faithfully live out our call to follow Christ in the here and now, trusting God to handle the future by working all things out according to his plan of redemption. Now, that brings me to one last kind of question and thought for this text. And it's the question, why does Jesus oscillate? Why does he move back and forth between teaching on the temple's destruction and his second coming? Why does he weave these two themes together in this conversation with his disciples? Now, I'm gonna give you my answer. You may not agree with it, so be it. Here's what I think's going on. I think it's a good one, but here we go. Now, up to this point, Consider all the things that we've studied in Mark's gospel up to this point. Up to this point, we've read and witnessed Jesus performing, again, many signs and many wonders. He's been doing miracles and he's called them signs. We have said that all of those signs indicate something about the kingdom of God. They show us something about the nature of God's kingdom and his concern for the world. So when Jesus heals the sick, it reminds us that sickness will not be present when the kingdom of God is fully consummated, when he casts out demons, he's reminding us that there's coming a day when all demons are exiled, when all demons are done away with. When he raises the dead, he's reminding us that death has no place in his kingdom. Those are the signs, those are the indications. So we have said, as we studied Mark, that those things function as appetizers designed to wetten our appetites for the coming kingdom. We want that life. We want that world. So we go for it. All of those signs, positive in nature, signaling the nature of the kingdom of God. But here, Jesus does talk about another sign. But this sign isn't positive. This sign is negative. He's talking about tribulations. He's talking about hardships. He's talking about the judgment that will fall upon Jerusalem. And, and so we just kind of trace our logic and we recognize we begin to recognize that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and all the events that surrounded it, including the abomination of desolation, all of that serves as a negative sign, a negative warning to people about what life outside of his kingdom will be like. He's showing us that the temple fell under divine judgment and one day the world will too. Judgment is coming to the world in which we live. Divine judgment is going to fall upon this world just as it fell upon Jerusalem back in that day. 
And a person's only hope can't be found by putting your faith in a building or a temple. Your hope cannot be found by putting your faith in a government or an ideology or a cause or a movement. Jesus even says, all those things are going to pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. Everything but one thing, and that is my words. My words will not pass away. Only the word of Christ is going to last forever. So our only hope then is found when we exercise an enduring faith in the word of Christ. And it is that type of faith that enables us to overcome any fears you may have about the future, including your fear of death, including your fear of divine judgment. You put your hope in the word of Christ and that hope, that faith can overcome your fears of the future, including the aspects of the future that this chapter signifies and that this chapter seems to unsettle us with. And so what we do as disciples is we respond to this text by setting aside every weight and sin that clings so closely to us, and we run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And it is from that place, one day the Father will say, go get him. And he's going to return. And our hope will be fulfilled. Our longings will be satisfied. A new heavens and a new earth awaits all those who trust in the word of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that your spirit would help us to meditate upon these thoughts. I know there's a lot here and we need your spirit to help us sift through the emotions that have surfaced as a result of reading this text and thinking about it. Help us as we move from here to, to not just run over, run past this passage or dismiss it. Help us to continue thinking about it and praying through it and having conversations over it together so that our faith may be filled up with what it is you want to edify us with and help us grow in. And so God, I ask and I pray that you would do that for us in Jesus' name, amen.